But this weekend, I want to start a series over the next three weeks that I'm speaking um, here at uh, Katong. And I want to talk about what's so fascinating about the Torah. Again, you know, I know that there's some feedback over the last couple of services that I go a little bit fast. Some of the people are saying, Pastor Lip, you're now running a lot. You're very fit. You only need to breathe once every five minutes. But for the rest of us, please slow down. So I try my best to speak a little bit slower. But I want to encourage you all to go back and listen to this whenever you need to because I am going to be a little, this is going to be a little bit heavy on content. Uh, for today's service, so do bear with me. And if you do have a uh, church scribe app, I encourage you to download uh, the slides because it will help you to tag along in the service. But I want to do this three-part series about the Torah because the Torah is very, very essential. The Torah is the Jewish name for the first five books of our Bible, which includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, as well as Deuteronomy. The authorship of these five books, of course, is attributed to Moses, and uh, in the Protestant church, we essentially call these uh, the Pentateuch or the five books, okay? Now, the word Torah in itself just means the uh, teaching or law and uh, contained within these five books, of course, is much more than just the laws, but there is a history of creation, there's a history uh, of uh, mankind, as well as the birth and the genesis of the whole nation of Israel uh, and the tribes that are there. Now, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to look at the Torah? Because the Torah the first five books of the Bible really forms a very, very substantial portion of our scriptures, and yet we really don't understand these books very much. They are so rich and full of uh, uh, truth and applications that not, that is not decreasing in their applicability, but it's ever increasing. And you would think, hey, these books are written thousands of years ago, but I want to assure you their application for us is now more relevant than ever before and shall be more relevant in the days that are ahead. But at the same time, you've got to look at these five books in the context of the New Testament. Because without the New Testament, a lot of things in the Old Testament will not make sense. Much of the Old Testament has to be understood with the hindsight of the cross and what Jesus accomplished on Calvary and, of course, in the New Testament. Now, I want to begin by clarifying a couple of things for us concerning the Torah or the laws, which is really important for us to understand. Now, first is this. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the Lord himself said this, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Take note of this. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You see, sometimes we think that the law is only up to the cross, and after the cross, the law has no use and is completely nullified. But Jesus clarifies this for us. He says, until the heavens and the earth pass away, and surely the heavens and the earth has not passed away yet, the law shall be fulfilled. In fact, when Jesus came and he began to, and he began to talk about the law, what the Lord did was he brought a real elevation of the standards of the law. In the Old Testament, you've got to literally commit adultery to be called an adulterer, but in the New Testament, all you need to do is to look lustfully at somebody else and you would have committed adultery. There's a real increase in the standard. And the reason the increase happens is because in the New Testament, there is something dramatically different. We are now a new creation. The seed of Christ is in us. The ability for us to fulfill the law is now in us when it wasn't in the Old Testament. And that's why the law standard has increased. Amen. Now, I want to talk more about this, but I'm going to talk about this next week in part two of this series. 
The second thing we need to understand when you look at the Torah is that understanding the New Testament has to be in the context of the Old Testament. You see, many times you read the New Testament, and as Christians, we love to read it, but I, meant, I want to tell you this. You, if you read the New Testament in the context of the Old, you will understand the New Testament much better. Now, did you know this? That Jesus never read the New Testament. 27 books in the New Testament, Jesus never read them because they were not written yet, okay? In fact, Jesus and the apostles, they read and they preached from the Old Testament when Stephen stood up just before he was martyred and he preached, he gave her account from the Torah of the history of Israel. You see, everything that even that is recorded in the New Testament that Jesus did, that Jesus spoke about, can be traced back to the Old Testament. You see, the Lord did many miracles. He said many things. And John told us this, if everything is recorded, then all the books in this earth will not be sufficient to record everything that Jesus said or did. So why are the things are recorded in the gospel? Why are those specific events recorded for us? The reason is this, every event that is recorded is somehow linked to the Old Testament. Why is the event of multiplication of bread you know, and fish recorded in the New Testament of what Jesus did. The reason is because in the Old Testament, the two types of the Messiah is Moses and Elijah, and both of them produce food. Moses in the wilderness, I mean, brought manna for the children of Israel, as well as quail, Elijah, you know, uh, multiplied food uh, for the widow. And Jesus, in fulfillment of the Messianic type, had to multiply bread. Amen. He gave bread just as Moses gave manna in the wilderness. The same thing, the woman with the issue of blood who touched Jesus on the garment and got healed is a direct reference to Malachi where the, uh, the prophet says, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Now the word in his wings actually means the hem of his garment. So when that miracle is recorded for us and the woman touched the hem of the garment, it is a reference to the fulfillment in Malachi that he is the Messiah because there is healing in the hem of his garments. You understand that? So these things that are recorded for us in the New Testament all have a reference to the Old Testament. John 7, verse 37 to 38, Jesus in the great feast invited all those who are thirsty to come to him and he'll give them living waters that will not run dry. You see, Jesus wasn't just talking about some random inward need that we might have. It's a reference to the rock that gave water to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is the rock. Amen? And that's all it is. So you've got to understand this. You've got to see the New Testament also from the eyes of the Old Testament. The third clarification I want to bring to us is this. The laws, they deal a little bit about the individual, but it deals a lot about the community. You see, as Christians, many times we think that the laws is a set of rules that governs individual behavior. We think of it, hey, it's a moral code about how to be moral, you know, how to have virtue, and so on and so forth. And the thing, the reason we think so is because we have looked at the laws and we've been very reductive about it. We've reduced all the five books into Ten Commandments and we think that that's all the law is. And surely the Ten Commandments is essentially a moral code for individuals. But when you look at Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy, you've got to say this, you've got to see this, that the bulk of the laws and instructions given has to do not with the individual, but with the community and with the society. Now, when you understand this, when you understand this, there's going to be a few conundrums you're going to face. Number one, we live in a secular society. And you're going to think, how can these laws be used by us today to apply into society when we don't get to dictate the, the laws and the norms that are here in the society we live in, 
right? We cannot say, hey, let's build laws that are based on the Bible here in Singapore because we are a secular society. And at the same time, when we look at these laws, they really appear on surface very arcane. It looks like they're very suited for an ancient civilization that's primarily agrarian, that is communal, somewhat even barbaric because there are laws governing wars as well, right? And I want to say that this cannot be furthest from the truth. Everything that is in the Torah actually has a lot of application for us today, especially in our times. Amen? Now, if you put aside the forms of ancient society, there's one thing that doesn't change. If you put aside all the methodology of the past, there's one thing that hasn't changed from then till now, and that's human nature. Human nature hasn't changed. Human drive hasn't changed very much. Greed, lust, you know, pride, the things that drives us, self-survival, self-validation, these things continue to govern much of who we are, and that's, that's what society is about. And so these laws actually have great application because it deals with the basic nature of who we are as human beings. And it has got more impact than just about ourselves. It's got a lot to do with teaching us how to function in our communities. Now, this weekend, I want to give to us three lenses through which we can look at the Torah. Now, what I'm going to, about to say may sound a little bit complicated, but, you know, um, I'm the one who prepares these messages, okay? I didn't, come, I didn't go and read somewhere and then copy them, okay? And so, um, the way I look at things is I'm generally a little bit mathematical in the way I think. I'm very uh, systematic. I compartmentalize things. I come up with titles that sound mathematical, but they are not, okay? So if, the, the next couple of things I'm going to say, uh, ignore the terminology that I might say, look at the diagrams that I've uh, presented to you all, okay? Now, the first way in which we can look at these five books in the Bible, I call it a linear progression, okay? That sounds like math, but this is not a class about AP or GP, uh, but instead it, it is a, a Bible class, okay? And um, I call it a linear progression because it's the most straightforward and easy and obvious way to look at these five books. You look at them as a sequential account of history from chronologically from the beginning to the point where Israel is about to cross the Jordan. So it is a straight line. I call it a linear. And I have a diagram to show you. And if you mark it across, you know, these are all a general set of events or, you know, I just gave some events that happened chronologically. And this is one way to look at the, the Torah. And this is a very important way to observe the Torah because the Torah in itself is organized chronologically for us. You see, when you look at history, you've got to understand that you're not looking at history merely as a set of events that happened in the past. You've got to understand that history explains to you the why of the present. Everything that we do now has a root in history. For example, if you were to ask us, you know, why is it that in Singapore we are left-hand drive? You know, why do we ascribe to a common law system? Why is our government parliamentary and not the Senate? And the reason is historically we were a British colony and we inherited these systems from the British. And of course, if you study the British common law system, there is a history behind it as to why they do things the way they are. So take, for example, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It gives us our composition as human beings. We, the Bible tells us that we are made in the likeness and in the image of God. You see, no other creature is created that way. That's what makes us different. We have a will, we have a spirit, we're sentient, we're eternal in our spirit being because God made us. And there is a reason why He made us to be such and understanding that helps us understand that we are created to know Him and to fellowship with Him. Amen? Another example, take the Ten Commandments, for example. It's a moral code. 
But if you look at it historically amongst all the laws that is given to Israel, the Ten Commandments were the first ones that were given before all the rest of the laws or the commandments were given. It's because without the Ten Commandments, we don't have the ability to build a sustainable community or society. There is no way that civilization can progress. Just remove any of those commandments, society in itself will collapse because it's so fundamental. Now, I want to show you something else that you might not have observed. If you read the Torah in a chronological, historical manner, you'll discover something very unusual. And this is what is unusual. These laws were all given to the nation of Israel before they entered the Promised Land. Now, some of you are what's so special about that. But if you were to take a step back and think about it, and give me an example of any country today or in history whereby they had laws before they had land. Singapore constituted itself and, and declared independence in 1965. We are people, we li were living in this piece of land, there was a separation from Malaysia, and then the laws were given. Think about this, there is no country, there is no civilization whereby they didn't first occupy a territory, a geographical location, before a law is instituted. The only nation for which this happened is Israel. Now this speaks a lot to us. This tells us a lot, and it tells us essentially that our identity must be first formed with our relationship with God before it is drawn from our sense of nationality. Amen? You are a first a Christian before you're a citizen of any other earthly nation. And there is important application of this. Think about this. During the Second World War, you know, where, you know in, in Nazi Germany, there was great nationalism because the end of the First World War was very devastating for the whole nation. And the people, many of them Lutherans, lost their Christian identity, embraced a national identity. And one of the smartest, most developed, most intellectual nation committed the most barbaric things ever because they embraced nationalism before a personal sense of moral identity before God. You understand that? This is the application that we have. So, you see, when you embrace your walk with God and that moral code that comes with it, that code is superior and it supersedes any earthly legislation such that even if there is no legislation requiring you to be honest, to act in a, in a manner that is integrity, you are still required and you'll still do it because you're first Christian. Singapore just passed a law, divorce without cause. Right? That's the law of the land. We respect that. But let me tell you this. There is a law that governs us above this law which Christians should not prescribe to. Amen? There is no divorce without cause for Christians because for us, marriage is not a contract in which you just sign a piece of paper. Marriage is a covenant. There is a higher law at work in our lives that demands more from us. Amen? Hello? I mean, Singapore has a no-littering law. Wonderful law. When I go to Africa, you know, there is there's no law against littering. You can litter, you know. But as Singaporeans, we go travel. We don't do that anymore. You, even a piece of little wrapper, you put it in your pocket till you find a dustbin and throw it away. Because what is not law, there is an internal law that is greater. You understand that? And that's the same thing that the Torah observes and teaches us. And one of the things, at least, as if we were to look at it from a linear progression. Now, the second way to observe the Torah is to look at it from a climatic progression. Again, if this is confusing for you, ignore it. Just look at the diagram, okay? One is a straight line. This one is a mountain, okay? And it, because the bulk of the, the Torah really is about preparing Israel for her calling. 
And a calling is not just entering the promised land to possess the promised land. The calling is about possessing the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? And most of the five books of the Bible is all about Israel being in a, sp- a liminal space of preparation. Now, what is a liminal space? A liminal space comes, uh, the word liminal comes from the Latin word limens, which essentially means a threshold. And that, that is a, an, a, an entrance or the beginning. Now, architects use this term, liminal space, to describe a transitional space between one space of function and another, maybe a corridor, maybe a walkway, a lobby, you know, to just represent the transition. Now, sociologists use this term to talk about a transformational space whereby we we go through a season where nothing happens, you are waiting, but it is transformational. It is a preparation for us. And that's what I want to look at because Israel, in the Torah, this is what Israel was going through. They were going through a liminal space right throughout the Torah and it is a climatic progression whereby God leads them to Mount Sinai in the process of their preparation. Now, again, look at this diagram, okay, um, that I've drawn for you. You have this climax where you go from A, B, C, BA. If you compare the two ends of this mountain, what you will see, if you look at the, the, if you look at the two ends of it, you find that at the beginning in Genesis, you talk about the prehistory of Israel. At the end in Deuteronomy, you talk about the future of Israel. In, uh, at Exodus, you talk about a journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And in Numbers, you talk about from Sinai to the Promised Land. And of course, right in the center is the climax, which is Mount Sinai. Now, I, I, I spoke about this in a message a couple of months ago. It could be about a year ago. And, but essentially, the first half of Israel's journey is really very different from the second half. In the first half of the journey, the, the nation was coming out from slavery. They were on the run. They were escaping. They were chaotic. There was no system. There was no, no law. They just all moved as a whole mass of refugees. But in the second half, it's very different because they were now going to enter the promised land. By then, they have been organized into tribes. There was a movement order that was given. There was a system that was in place. And all of that is quite different. And the climax of this, of course, is in Mount Sinai where Israel meets God face to face. And a covenant is made between God and the nation of Israel. And the similarity to our Christian walk is so evident. When we first become believers, it's like a honeymoon, isn't it? You pray and God answers your prayer straight away. You are late for school. You go down to the bus stop. You say, oh God, please send the bus now. Boom, the bus comes. And this Christian walk is so good. You pray for a parking lot. It appears straight away. And you begin to think that God is a God of benefits. So good. You read the Bible, everything is alive, there's a fresh hunger in your heart. You pray and the presence of God is there. You come to worship and oh, you just sense His presence. It's so wonderful. But it is a honeymoon. There's a point where God begins to introduce Himself to you. He begins to show you there's more than just about benefits that you get out from Him. He shows you His call, His desire for you. You begin to learn that the Christian walk has a struggle, there's a fight involved. There is about, it's about growing up. It's about learning to love others. There's a vision that is planted to you. To you. There's a burden that's laid upon your shoulders. And all of a sudden, your walk with God changes. Reading the Bible now becomes a discipline. You come to church, and sometimes you just don't feel the presence of God. You wonder where He is. But all that is important because we find ourselves in a liminal space. And here it is. The Torah is a great guide for us when we are in a space of transformation and preparation. All of a sudden, the dietary laws are no longer about what you can eat physically. It's about what you can eat spiritually in order to grow, in order to be clean. All of a sudden, the laws about hygiene and quarantine isn't about physical disease. It's about the sicknesses that inflicts your soul. 
that makes you unwell so that you can't walk properly with God and then how to deal with it. The wilderness becomes a showcase for all the areas in which God is going to test us in our walk with Him. Now, I want to look at Mount Sinai for a moment because technically in the Torah, Mount Sinai was the climax. But nonetheless, we understand this on hindsight with the New Testament that while Mount Sinai is the climax, it was only a shadow of the climax because you think about it at Mount Sinai, God comes down, He meets His people, He's been waiting for this moment to live amongst His people. Yet the result of Mount Sinai is almost anticlimactic because at the end of it, the people said to God, He says, God, we don't want this. Lord, this is too terrifying. Your voice is too great. We will die if we have this relationship with you. So what they decided is they chose Moses to be a go-between. They said, Moses, you go talk to God. We talk to you. God talk to you, you talk to us. And they put a divider when it was supposed to be a moment where all the dividers are separated. Therefore, Sinai was a shadow and God permitted it because provision had not been made. It is only until the New Testament comes that the veil is rent and the provision is made. And Paul picks this up in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. And he says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burn with fire, and to blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words. Guess what? This is Mount Sinai he's describing. Because these are all the things that happen. And then it goes on and says, and those who heard back that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Can you imagine? To hear the voice of God, it says, no, Lord, enough, enough. I cannot hear from you anymore. And that's what the people said. But in verse 22, Paul goes on and says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and heavenly Jerusalem. You see, Sinai was a, a shadow, an incomplete picture of what God intends to do. The mountain that God has truly called us to is Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. Amen? And in the light of the New Testament, we understand this. Moses was an insufficient mediator. And comes Jesus, he is the perfect mediator. At his death, the veil was rent. And we may all now come boldly into God's presence. There's a change in our nature. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand clean and righteous before the face of God. Amen? That's wonderful. Amen? Praise the Lord. And this is what has happened. God has made a way for us. What a great climax this is. Now, I have a few minutes left and I want to finish this up, okay? The third perspective that which we can look at the first book, the first five books, uh, is called, uh, I call it a parallel progression, okay? And again, I know this sounds complicated, but bear with me. And what I've done is on this diagram, I've listed for you two parallel lines and I've listed just a couple of events because you will discover in these five books that things that just duplicates itself. Events or history seems to repeat itself. Things seems to go in pairs and this double, uh, you know, uh, uh, narrative happens over and over again. So now let's look at the three ways of looking at this. If you look at the first, the linear progression, essentially on a diagrammatic form, you have A, B, C, D, E. You, you have point A to point E that you're traveling towards is a straight line. In the climatic progression, you have A, B, C, B, A. There's a climax and then a mirroring of events, but yet those events that are mirrored are quite different. And finally, in this progression, the parallel progression, it is A, B, A, B, A, B, where there's literally a mirroring of events. And, but you've got to understand this. What, you know, the, the question I, I want to ask is this. What is the point of considering or reading the Torah from this third perspective? You see, Bible doesn't repeat things for the sake of repeating them. 
But each time he repeats them, there's something that God is communicating to us. There are differences that happens in each of these repeats. And what it does more than anything else, it shows us God's ways. God is revealing how he works. God is revealing what is it that he prizes. God is revealing to us something about the way that he works so that we can work with him. And that's why I call this God's opera, uh, modus operandi, okay? Now, I want to quickly go through five repeated events just in the book of Exodus alone. And again, this is not even exhaustive. Um, there's a diagram I want to put up to you. Two contests, two commandments, two clouds, two covenants, two coverings. And you'll discover that in the book of Exodus alone, there are these events that repeat itself. Uh, they fought two battles, one against the Egyptians, one against the Amalekites. Two sets of tablets were given, first before the golden calf, uh, idolatry, one after. There are two clouds. One first appeared in Mount Sinai, and the second cloud appeared on the tabernacle uh, of Moses. There are two covenants that were made. Uh, um, God makes one, and then he reiterates it. You know, after the golden calf, there are two coverings. The set of the tabernacle, how it's constructed, was given twice in this book alone. Now, the common thread between all these five double narratives that is, is that in the first instance, God acts unilaterally, and he does things sovereignly and supernaturally. In the battle against the Egyptians, he fought and he fought alone. Israel didn't have to lift a single, didn't have to lift a finger up. But in the battle against the Malachites, it's different. The battle was won by Moses lifting his hand, so it's still supernatural. But Israel were in the battlefield. They had to fight themselves, right? In the, in, the, in the two tables of stone, the first one, God actually was the one who gave the stones. In the second one, we are told that Moses made the stones and then God wrote on them. In each of these examples, the second instance always had men getting involved in what God was doing, even though the events were very, very similar. And the lessons that nuance for us here is really important. In the most formative stage of, of the nation of Israel, God establishes a precedence. He's giving us an understanding of how He works. And the truth that's being conveyed to us is simply this. God liberates us, but freedom is sustained by ourselves. He sets us free from the Egyptians, but thereon after, we have to fight to keep our freedom. God gives us the commandments, but without our struggle with it, those commandments don't become a part of us. That's why when we become Christians, not all our weaknesses are dealt with. God doesn't suddenly, you don't suddenly become a saint. There's still a fight, there's still a struggle because God gives us the commandments, but he wants us to be transformed through the process of struggle, through the process of receiving the grace of God, appropriating it so that those things become a part of us. He changes our nature as we struggle in this process. Amen. God shows us that he doesn't want to just inhabit his creation because Mount Sinai was completely created by God. It's an, it's, it's a, it's an object of nature. Human hands did not chip that mountain into shape. But the tabernacle was made completely by the hands of men. And here God is saying to us, hey, I would love to occupy creation, but I tell you what, I prefer to occupy men and women. I'd rather live in the midst of my people living and dwelling in their hearts than just dwelling in the stars or in the mountains. God is expressing to us in every episode a sense of who He is and His will and His, and His ways to every single one of us. Amen? And this is what it is. You see, each way that you look at the Bible or that the Torah, there are new things that God wants to reveal to us. I ask myself, why do I want to share this? I want to share this because I want to encourage us to read the Word of God. Amen? Here in Cornerstone, as pastors, we don't believe in spoon-feeding you all. 
we encourage you to go read your Bibles. You know, we have hashtag 365 that we do every year, and I just completed my hashtag 365 last week. I finished the Bible, New Testament twice this year, the Old Testament once, and I'm starting for next year already. But as you start the year, as you read the Bible, it's important for you to have tools, and that's, my, that's what I want to do. I just want to give you some simple lenses to look at the Word of God so that when you examine, you can see it in, with fresh eyes. You can glean truths for yourself. You can learn to feed yourself and not just wait for Sundays to come in order to be fed by your pastors. Can I say this to all of us? The pastors, we cannot read your Bibles for you. I don't read my Bible for your sake. I read my Bible for myself. Hello? I don't read my Bible just so I can prepare messages to feed you guys. I read the Bible because I'm feeding myself before anything else. Amen? And I want to encourage you all to do that. Over the next two weeks, we're going to talk a bit more. The next two Sundays, I'm going to give you a lot more practical stuff to look at. And, but I want to encourage us, amen, have a love, have a desire for God's Word. Let's all stand to our feet, shall we? I pray that today, I can help you guys see that the Torah, the laws are more than just a set of do's and don'ts. But there is a deep sense of who God is. Psalms 119 says this, that God has opened our eyes to see wondrous things in His laws. There are many wonderful things that are, better, that are embedded in His laws than He wants us to see. Let's pray, shall we? Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord. I thank You for my brothers and my sisters. I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, for the wisdom that You have given to us. I thank You for the insights, the understanding, O oh Lord. Father, I thank You, O oh God, that You have given us all things and nothing is ever wasted, Lord. Father, You have given us the keys, Lord, to build our own lives, to build our families, to build our communities, to build our society to build our businesses, to build our classrooms, Lord. Lord, to build our relationships. Father, you've given us everything that we should need, Lord, to understand some of the most developmental things that are coming ahead of us, oh Lord. And yet, Lord, many times we have not searched you out, Lord. We have not searched out your word. Father, I pray that today as we stand before you in your presence, oh God, that you awaken us, Lord, with a fresh hunger for your things, Lord. You awaken us with a fresh hunger for what you have for us and what you desire to give to us, Lord. Your word says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to seek out that matter. Father, give us the glory of kings, Lord, that we would have a seeking heart to seek after you, Lord, to seek to know your truth, O oh God, your ways, O oh God. Open our eyes, Lord, to see wondrous things, Lord, from your laws, O oh God. We bless you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory and honor. And now, Lord, I just speak your blessings over your congregation, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's give the Lord a clap offering, shall we? You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.